want to talk to you today about why did God make us male and female? Why did God make us male and female? Obviously a uh, very significant issue, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a hot button topic right now. And uh, for me, when I look at preaching and teaching, both of them, it doesn't matter which one it is, I think of it as a form of spiritual combat. If I'm being asked to share the word of God uh, in any context, I'm not just out to dispense information and make people feel a little smarter, a little more educated by the time I'm done. We want to effectively destroy strongholds of, of darkness and evil. That's what we want to do. That's why we go to the word of God. And I just have a, a great deal of compassion in my heart for people who struggle in this area, whether it's in or out of the church. And I actually want to deal not just with an explanation as far as why did God do this? Why did he structure the, the world this way? Why did he decide to have us express his image in this manner? But even to talk about how do we engage in conversations as men and women of God? How do we approach people when they're asking questions and they truly want to know what God has to say about it? So I'm going to ask us all to turn to the book of Genesis chapter 1, very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible. We're going to read verses 26 through 28, and then we're going to jump right into chapter 2, and we're going to read one verse at the end of chapter 2. So chapter 1 of Genesis, we're going to read verses 26 through 28. We're going to go straight into chapter 2 and read verse 24 near the end. Why did God make us male and female? Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 26. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In chapter 2, verse 24, it says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Amen. So God is at the end of the process of creation. He's made this beautiful universe. He's made incredible creatures to fill the seas, to fill the skies, to fill the land, and he's going to crown it all with a creature that's utterly unique, it's not like the elephants, it's not like the dogs, it's not like the whales, it's, it's something completely different because it's going to be like him. It's going to have a unique capacity to relate with God. It's going to be a creature that is able to communicate with him and be spoken to by him, a creature that's able to not just commune with him, but represent him and rule on his behalf. That's what is inc included in the idea of let's make him in our image. Man was created to be the image bearer of God, to reflect his beauty and his nature. You and I, every person in this world is intended, whether we're living up to that is another question, but we are intended to be a reflection of God's beauty. Maleness and femaleness are meant to be reflections of the beauty and the majesty of God. And when you read the creation account and God makes Adam, it's the only time God looks at something and says, it's not good for man to be alone. Every other day he said, it's good, it's good, it's good. You get to day six, he creates Adam and he says, it's not good 
for this man to be alone. Why? Because Adam by himself, that one human sex, was not sufficient to fully express the image of God. Because God's a relationship. He's triune. He is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And these three divine beings and one God are loving each other. They are fellowshipping with each other. And in order for God to show his world what he's like, one person wasn't going to cut it. He needed to create a community. He needed to create a marriage, a relationship. He needed male and female to bring it all together. So when we're talking about why people exist, why we exist in the states that we do, as far as our sex and gender are concerned, it's because God is expressing himself. That's really what you and I are. You are God's self-expression to the cosmos. There is nothing else like you in the universe You look up in the heavens and you think about how beautiful and incredible the the stars are and the planets and the, the, the wonder of just going to the beach. You ever stand on the beach at nighttime? And you look out into that black abyss of, of night and it looks like it's gonna just swallow you. It's overwhelming. Have you ever been to the Grand Canyon? Oh my goodness, what, what majesty, you know? And all of that is is just a it, it's it's like a spark. Of, of God's beauty compared to the bonfire that you and I are meant to be. We, we are a unique display of the beauty of God that nothing else in this universe even comes close to touching. And it's no wonder to me that from Genesis onward, the image of God is constantly under attack. It's always under attack. When you look at marriage developing in, in the book of Genesis, I'm departing from my notes for just a minute here. I really want to paint a picture for you. The first time you see polygamy come into scripture, it's with this guy named Lamech, and he's one of the sons of Cain. He's the first guy to marry more than one woman. And you can just tell this guy is a belligerent oppressor. He's boasting about killing a young man who insulted or, or wounded him. And now he's kind of, he speaks this really strange poem to his wives saying that anyone who messes with me, God's going to avenge them. So now he thinks God is on his side and all of his vengeful attitude. So this is the first time you see manhood falling into corruption where rather than being moved with compassion as leader of the home rather than being a good kind gentle head he's oppressive womanhood is being stripped of its dignity and of its beauty because these two women are being oppressed and they're being demeaned by this man that should be covering one of them but he's he's demeaning both of them in the process uh you see Two times in scripture where a madman of a king decides to slaughter innocent babies. Pharaoh is threatened by how quickly the Israelites are multiplying. So he says, kill all the firstborn babies, all the firstborn males specifically, so that they can't raise an army and and threaten us militarily. You see, when Jesus is born in his earthly body, Herod the king is threatened by this rising up of a Messiah. So he says, go to Bethlehem and kill all the boys two years old and, and younger. You see multiple times throughout Israel's history where marriage got warped into something it wasn't supposed to be. And God's having to correct it because things that were meant to bear his image, things that were meant to show the world what he's like are getting twisted and corrupted and assaulted. Every generation faces this in one form or another. Every generation does. And it's critical that we as the the representatives of God We as the church of Jesus Christ know how to respond. And by knowing how to respond, we also have to know why things are the way that they are. 
Why are things intended to be the way that God intends them to be? God actually assigns sex to humans. He assigns gender to humans to express his majesty. This is not something that we get to pick and choose and say, well, I feel this way, I feel that way. No, God has assigned it, not because he is oppressive and says, no, I'm going to tell you who you are. He does get to tell us who we are, but as a good father and creator, there's nothing oppressive about that. God assigns us identity because he loves us. He assigns us identity because he wants you to know who you are and to have a sense of purpose that's not birthed out of confusion and trying to find your own way, but because you were made, you were lovingly handcrafted, but there's a responsibility that comes with that because if we are made, then we owe our existence to somebody else and we don't have the right to define that in any way that we please. We owe the definition of our lives to him. And to take that away from him is defiance and idolatry of the worst kind. We don't have the right to withhold our identity from God. We don't have the right to say, no, I'll decide who and what I am. And this can play out on a number of levels. We're simply dealing with one category here. We're dealing with one category, but you could extend this into a host of other issues that people deal with throughout their lives. But Satan hates the image of God. He hates the image of God. Because it's an expression of his beauty. And because he hates God's image, he hates God's image bearers. And the thing that I really want to put into our focus today is not how awful this sin is and how horrible. I actually want us to realize how beautiful people are. Because that's actually the paradigm shift that I feel we need in the way we deal with this issue. What's our starting point? When we think of this matter, when we think of whether it's a wrong sexual orientation, when it's a wrong gender identity, when it's a redefinition of marriage, do we immediately think abomination? Or do we think, no, something that's meant to be beautiful, something that is meant to be ravishing, something that is meant to capture the imagination and display to the universe the beauty and the glory of God is being taken and it's being messed with. And someone's got to stand up and fight for the people who can't fight for themselves. What's our starting point? You can get off on the wrong foot in some of these conversations. You really can. The Bible says that it's abominable when you start messing with God's image in a, in a sexual manner. It surely does. I'm not compromising anything. But before it gets to any of that, it says human beings are meant to be an expression of God's image in a way that nothing else in creation can be. If we only get angry at people's sin, but we never weep over it, we're not ready to talk about it. We're not ready to talk about it. If there's nothing in us that can cry over the people who are moving through all of this, whether they're suffering through it or they're enjoying it, if there's nothing in us that can weep over it, we're not ready to move forward. We've got to actually take a step back and reevaluate where we are and how we approach these matters. Amen? So if you're ready to go forward, I'm going to ask for our first point to come up on the screen. We are made male and female to reflect the nature of God. We are made. We don't choose male or female. We are made male and female to reflect the nature of God. Now, I want to clarify what we mean by that in the next point, please. God is non-physical. He's non-physical and he's neither male nor female. Now, what does that mean? John 4.24 Jesus is speaking, and he says, God is spirit, 
and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So when we say that God is neither male nor female, what we're simply acknowledging is that God transcends gender. He's beyond it. We're not to think of him in gender-specific or sexualized terms. He's beyond all of that. These are things he has given us, physical beings in a physical world, to understand who he is and what he's like. It's kind of like marriage itself. What did Jesus tell uh, the Sadducees when they came to him? He said in the resurrection, in the coming age, when all evil is put away and everyone is existing either with God or apart from God for eternity, no one will be married nor given in marriage. Marriage is an institution that God has given man for this life and for this world. It serves a purpose of communicating to us what God is like. And so when we look at human sexuality, we look at our gender assignment that God has given us, we are not to think that, well, is God male and female? No, he's neither male nor female. These are things he's given us to understand what kind of God he is. He's non-physical. Second point, please. The human sexes describe God's spiritual qualities. That's ultimately what they do. Our physical sexes describe God's spiritual qualities. So again, we are not trying to imagine, is God to be defined in physical terms? Is he a physical being like us? No. No, he's not. Well, when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, yes. God incarnate in Jesus Christ did take on a physical body. He took on the male sex. But we're dealing in a, in a broader spectrum. We're looking at the whole trinity, if I could put it that way. God is non-physical. He has given us maleness and femaleness to understand what he's like. But those qualities describe his spiritual qualities. They tell us what kind of God he is. And I'm going to give you several examples from the scripture that I, I think you'll find very exciting and very, very moving. So actually, if we could bring up the next point, please. God uses masculinity and femininity to describe himself. He uses both masculinity and femininity. There are times where God compares himself to a father, compares himself to a man, and there are times he actually compares himself to a mother. He compares himself to woman and he does it completely comfortably. He doesn't feel, he doesn't make it weird or anything like that. We think it's weird because we get very physical in the way we read these passages, but God very comfortably is appealing to what he gave us to show us what he's like. He says, no, I am like this. Here's a physical sign that I gave you from creation onward. This will help you understand what I'm like. I'm very much like this. Look at that and you'll get a picture of what kind of God that I am. The first thing that I want us to see is that God is, next point please, he is nurturing and compassionate. He's nurturing and compassionate. These are qualities where he distinctly relates to womanhood or, or to maternity. Listen to Isaiah 49 verses 14 through 15. The prophet is speaking and he says, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And here's God's response. Can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. He's comparing himself to a mother nursing her infant baby. He's basically saying there is a better chance of a woman forgetting that she has an infant at her breast than there is of me forgetting my love and commitment to you. He is a nurturer. He very comfortably says, I am like a nursing mother. No nursing mother ever forgot there was a baby nursing at her breast. Those things bite. They're like hitting and blah, 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 you know. 
It's not possible. And God is saying there is a better chance of them forgetting that they have a baby cradled in their arms. And you think about what an intimate bonding moment that is for mother and child. God says there's a better chance of a mother forgetting, forgetting what she's doing, forgetting the child that she's holding in her arms than there is of me forgetting my commitment to you, forgetting how intensely I love you. He says, I'm like a mother. He is appealing to that physical sign of womanhood to show, to show us what he's like. He's good. He's a nurturer. And nurture, by the way, is not some soft term. To, to nurture literally means to feed and protect. To feed and protect. This is the kind of God that he is. He's compassionate. Exodus 34, verse 6, this is where God is speaking his name to Moses. It's an incredible passage. If you've not read it before, you really should. Moses begs God, show me your glory. And so God hides him in the cleft of a rock. He, he walks past him and he proclaims his name. This is what he says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, I'm reading from the ESV. It says merciful, compassionate is a better translation there. But the first thing God says about himself is that he's compassionate. Now, the reason why that's important is because in Hebrew, words are kind of tied to pictures and images. You know, when you and I describe things, we use a lot of adjectives. We'll say, my God is strong. My God is mighty. But when you read in Hebrew, you read the Psalms, it doesn't say God is mighty or God is strong. It's God is a rock. God is a fortress. They'll appeal to nouns. They'll appeal to objects and say, this is what God is like. And the word for compassion in Hebrew actually comes from the word for womb. The word for compassion in Hebrew comes from the word for womb. So when they were deciding, I guess, what, how do you, what, what, what's compassion? What does it mean to care for the vulnerable? And that's, that's like a womb. That, the ultimate state of vulnerability, that, that helpless baby growing inside its mother's belly. And, and that's the first thing God says about himself. The first description that God gives of his own name is that he's compassionate. And it, again, comes from that word for womb. Because compassion is all about caring for vulnerable people. Caring for people who cannot help for themselves. You are stirred to action by the state that you see them in. You want to take action to help them and improve their well-being. That's what compassion is. And so the Hebrews were like, yeah, that's just like the womb. When a woman is pregnant, my goodness, she is given her body for the benefit of the body within her. She has given, she has made her body a house of well-being, a house of nurture and compassion for a vulnerable, helpless being that is growing inside of her. And you see that part of God's image being attacked, where the womb is no longer a place of compassion and nurture and safety. It's a place of, it's a place of slaughter, but it's nicknamed choice. And it ought not to be that way. The first thing God says about himself to Moses is, I am compassionate. I'm like that mother's womb. I care for the vulnerable. I house them. I hold them. I, I go to those who can't help themselves. I, I pick them up. This is who he is. He's nurturing. He's like a mother nursing her baby. She can never forget what she's doing. He says, I can never forget that I love you. He says, I'm compassionate. I'm, that, I'm like that, that mother's womb that's just given to the well-being of that baby, that helpless, vulnerable child growing within her. This is what he's like. And he appeals to womanhood to display it. He appeals to motherhood to tell the world what he's like. 
That's why, that's why femaleness, being a woman, ladies, is a depiction of the beauty of God. Don't despise what you are. Don't feel awkward or uncomfortable with what you are. It's God-given and God-ordained to express his character to the world. People are beautiful. People are beautiful. Next point, please. He's also generous, committed, and protective. He's generous, he's committed, and he's protective. This is where he appeals to more masculine, fatherly qualities to display what he's like. In Luke chapter 11, verses 11 through 12, Jesus is speaking. He says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good things or give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He appeals to basic knowledge of, of fathers. If, if I go to my dad and I ask him for a bread, he's not going to give me a stone. If I ask him for a fish, he's not going to give me a serpent. Now, some of us have, have had fathers, maybe, who would have given us scorpions, who did give us serpents, who did give us stones. And that's why people have a hard time accepting the love of God very often. Because we've had parents, earthly parents, who failed in their role, who failed to do what they were intended to do. We get a warped image of God. So Jesus is speaking in an ideal sense here. He says, look, none of you right-thinking fathers are going to abuse your children like that. If they ask you for bread, you're not going to give them rocks. Look, you're not a better father than God, is what he's saying. And so Jesus is teaching the people a lesson about God's fatherly generosity by appealing to humanly fatherly generosity. So he's looking at the physical sign. He's appealing to masculinity. He's appealing to manhood to say, this is what God is like. He's committed. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12. It says that, it's, I'll start in verse 11. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord and don't grow weary when you're corrected by him. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Now, this is not a verse that just is talking about, you know, receive correction. This is talking about a long-term goal where good fathers, when fathers delight in their children, they will do whatever is necessary to train them for life. They're going to give the correction and the discipline necessary to make sure that their kids grow up to be productive members of society that they're able to raise their own families and to be stable, functioning adults. And the, pro the author of Proverbs is comparing God to a good father. And he says, look, if your earthly fathers are going to be committed to your well-being like that, how much more is your heavenly father going to do it? If God convicts you, it's not because he's against you, it's because he's for you. If you're in church one Sunday and the word comes from the pulpit, it just, oh, it's a dagger right to your heart. Oh, I'm going to need to repent after this one. You are being loved. You are being loved by your heavenly father because he's committed to you. He is committed to getting you through this life, not as some floundering, unstable person. He wants you to be strong and stable. You know the difference between right and wrong. You know how to make godly decisions and make godly choices in a way that's going to bring honor to the name of Jesus. He's committed to you. He's committed to growing you up spiritually into a man or woman that can represent him and make his name known in the earth. That's what Proverbs 3 is embodying, this idea of a committed father. And that's what God is like. Thirdly, he's protective. 
He's protective. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 30 through 31. It says, the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. And so in this brief little snippet of scripture that we're getting here, Moses is summarizing the whole history of the children of Israel from the Exodus until that point in the desert. And he says, you guys were trapped in slavery. The Egyptians were destroying you. They were oppressing you. And your father came in. Your heavenly father came in, scooped you up in his arms. He fought for you. He carried you out of that land. He tore down their army. He tore down their economy. He tore down their religion. And he carried you out, carried you through the desert. And that's why you are where you are today. Because he's protected you. Everything that's tried to destroy you, everything that has tried to bring your life to an end, he has kept you and carried you the way a father carries his son. And again, all of these examples, all of these examples are human. They're physical examples. They're all things that happen every day. There are things that should be happening in every home around the world where mothers should never forget their nursing baby. Women should cherish and be excited over that life that's growing inside of them when they feel it kicking and somersaulting and sitting on their bladder. In every home, children should know that if I ask my dad for food, he's going to feed me. If I, if I ask my dad for this, he's going to take care of me. Children should grow up in a house stable knowing that, you know what, everything my, my father does, he does it because he's committed to me. He wants me to learn. He wants me to know how to do right. Every child should know that if I put my arms up like this, dad's going to pick me up and he's going to carry me wherever he needs to go. I'll tell you what, when my boy puts his arms up like this, there's nothing that can keep me from grabbing him up. There is nothing that can keep me from getting to him. I'm, I've seen fear in his eyes. I know when he's scared. I know when he's sad. And when I see that and his arms are out like this, don't get in my way. It will not go well for you. Only God can help you. Just I'm getting to that boy. He's mine. He's mine. And look, I'm not a better father than God. These are all physical examples and God gave them to us to say, this is what I'm like. Now look, here's the thing. Why are we applauding? We're applauding because we know it's beautiful, right? It's beautiful when you see these expressions, when you see families functioning healthily, you see happy kids, good dads, good moms. We know that it's beautiful. But that's why we've got to be ready to grieve and fight when we see it getting messed with. That's why it matters. What's happening right now matters. It matters that people are wanting to tell our kids that they might not be what they were born as. It matters. It matters that that curriculum is being brought into schools. Because, look, it's not about, well, this is just wrong because God says it's sin. It's because, no, this is supposed to be beautiful. And you're ruining it. The, the perfect artist of the universe gave us an incredible life to live in, an incredible existence to have. He, he gave us beauty all around us in our relationships, and we're touching it. We're, we're changing it. We're messing with it. 
But the starting point isn't, oh, how abominable. It's, wait, no. Don't do this to yourself. You're beautiful. Don't do this to yourself. You're beautiful. You know, what if that was our first approach? You know, I've had people ask me, well, why, why do I have to fight what I feel? If, if God wants it this way, then why is this going on inside of me? Look, what if we started saying instead of, well, you've got to fight because it's sin. You've got to fight because God says so. What if we changed the narrative a bit? We said, you've got to keep fighting because you're beautiful. You've got to keep fighting because you're beautiful and you're worth fighting for. I know it's confusing. I know it's hard. And look, guys, we have to have compassion for people who are in that place. We have to. We have to. And you know, whether it's in this house or, or people watching online, look, you know, if you're a Christian and you struggle with, with your identity, you struggle with your orientation in any way, listen, you are, you are not an outcast or a spiritual reject. God loves you. You are beautiful and you're worth fighting for. We have to... We have to stop shaming people into silence where they can't say, you know, if a, if a single Christian, this is an example I've been thinking about lately. And honestly, I don't even think it was original. I, I believe I heard this from, from somewhere. You know, if a single Christian who's getting a little further along in life, you know, they go to a wedding. They think, oh man, when, when will I have that? You know, that's, that's totally understandable. But, you know, people who, who deal with they're, they're Christians and they struggle with being attracted to the same sex or something of the sort. They'll go to a wedding and think, I may never have that. That's lonely. You know? We have to care about people's struggles. We have to care about people's battles. We, we have to be willing to fight. And, and if the only thing we ever say is, this is just so awful and abominable, and that's all we ever say, look, people are going to own that. And it's really hard to feel loved by a God who calls your struggle just abominable. It's hard to not identify with that. What's our starting point? We can't be compromising, folks. We cannot compromise what the word of God says. These things are clearly defined. Don't touch it. Don't mess with it. But the way that we approach it is critical. It's one thing when you have people, they've made up their minds, they're defiant, they are going to dictate to themselves and for themselves the way reality is going to be. That's another category. But when you have people who are just really, they want to know. They want to know what God says, and they even want to do what God says. They just don't know how. What's our starting point? I want to start off telling them, look, you've got to keep fighting because you are beautiful. You are an expression of the beauty of God. You are his image bearer, and this world is all falling apart. This world is disastrous. You've got all kinds of malfunction and all kinds of different settings, but there's a day coming. There's a day coming when every battle is going to be brought to a close all evil is going to be put away. Every temptation is going to be crushed. And we're all going to live in perfection. We're going to see his face. And the Bible says we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. People are beautiful. And that's why they need to keep fighting. And that's why we need to fight for them. It's not just about, a, it's not just about fighting abomination. It's about fighting for God's beauty. It's about fighting for his beauty. It's meant to be expressed through human vessels. And when you see human vessels just getting warped and twisted into something that they're not supposed to be, that should make us grieve. That should put a fight in us. It should make us hit our knees. Last point before we wrap up today, if we could bring that up. We are made male and female because it's beautiful. We are made male and female because it's beautiful. Next point, I'm just going to run through these. The reason it's beautiful is because it reflects God. 
It's not about anything beginning within us. It's because of him. Being a man, being a woman is beautiful because it reflects who God is. Next point. The reason we defend it is because God is beautiful. Last point. The reason we defend it is because people are beautiful. We are in an increasingly anti-Christ culture. The truth is becoming more and more offensive in particular areas. And it's going to start costing us to a degree to stand up for Jesus and to say that there is a right and a wrong, especially in this area. And I've decided that I'm not flinching on the cost. I'm not compromising, no matter what that might entail or what that might mean in the days to come. And I I know I'm not the only one who feels that way, but with those last two points, if we could bring those up for just one more moment, all, all of those last points, please. If we could just put them up on the screen. Those, those last two points at the bottom, the reason we defend it is because God is beautiful and because people are beautiful. That's what I, I want to be my starting point. I want those to be the basis for why, why I stand. Why do we stand in the place that we do? Why do we fight the way that we do? Well, it's about beauty. It's about the beauty of God and it's about the beauty of people. It's about the beauty of the creatures that he loves passionately. It's about rescuing them in every sense. That's why God made us male and female because he wants to show the universe how glorious he is. The reason why you are what you are is because you're meant to be an expression of the beauty of God. And there is there's power and there's healing available to those who have a hard time believing that. There's power and healing available to those who have a hard time believing that. No matter why you have a hard time believing it, God's power is here to heal you. He loves you and he's not ashamed of you. I don't care who I'm talking to. I don't care if this is the most relevant for a person who's going to hear this after 35 shares online. I don't, I don't care. People are worth fighting for because they're beautiful. And I don't want to let sin just twist it. Amen. So let's stand together. You know, I have to be honest, I don't really have an altar call. I really don't. I, I know we always pray at the end of the service. I know we'll worship. If you're here today and maybe you just need healing, or if you want to even cry out for healing on behalf of another person, if you have someone in your family, more and more I'm meeting Christians, they have a sibling, they have a parent, they have a cousin who is just so trapped and so confused. If you need to cry out for you or you need to cry out for somebody else, Come cry out for them at the altar and believe God for healing. Fight for them because they're beautiful. If it's you, you're beautiful and you need to be fought for. And if you come down front, you're going to be fought for today. You will be fought for. You will be stood with. So if it's for you or for somebody else, just come and believe God. Lord, we want your delivering power. Lord, it's for my sibling. It's for my parent. It's for for this person. It's for my friend. It's for my roommate. Lord, it's for me. God, we want your delivering power. We want your healing to come. Lord, let the beauty of what you intended cast out all the confusion. Let the beauty of your creative design cast out all of the lies and all of the brokenness and all of the evil. That's our prayer today. Father, I thank you for the beautiful people at this altar, oh God. Lord, I thank you for the beautiful people that they're crying out for, oh God. Lord, every one of us is 
we're here either for ourselves or for somebody else, but God, we're looking to you as the healer. God, you designed us. Lord, you designed us perfectly. And Lord, we might be living in a world that is subject to corruption. Lord, it's subject to pain. Lord, in some cases, it's, it's subject to even physical issues that will affect this battle. But God, no matter what it is, no matter what category a life might fall under, Lord, they are loved by you and they're precious. And God, I'm asking that you would make it clear that you are a good father and that, Lord, this is not a message of hatred. This is not a message of prejudice. Lord, this is not a message of, of fear. This is a message of love, oh God, that the stand that you are calling us to take Lord, that it would be clear, it would be clear, oh God, to the hungry, Lord, that this is not, this is not the message, these are not the words of people who are hateful and bigoted, Lord, these are words of people who care and have compassion, who know who their God is and want the world to know what kind of God he is, the love that he pours out, the compassion. God, I pray that, Lord, you would correct every misconception that we might have of you because human relationships have failed. Lord, I, I pray that you would help us all in our human relationships, Lord, to be like you. God, help us to be like you and to represent you, Lord Jesus Christ, that the world may know that you're good and that you are, you are the great designer, Lord God. You designed the family. You designed our maleness. You designed our femaleness, Lord, all of it to reflect your nature, to reflect your beauty and to reflect your goodness and Lord, I pray that you would make our light shine even brighter. Lord, as the world is insisting on darkness, Lord, let our light become that much more visible. Lord, let the health and the love of our families, oh God, be that much more visible. May the, the health and the love of our friendships be pure and visible to the world around us, oh God. Lord, let this place be a house of healing. Make us vessels of healing, oh God. Lord, you give us identity. And we're not truly content until we find it in you. So that's what we're asking you for today. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you guys.